The wheel of time turns and ages come and pass, leaving memories that become legend. Legend fades to myth and even myth is long forgotten when the age that gave it birth comes again. Welcome to Through the Glass Columns, a Wheel of Time read-along podcast. Each week, we will be reading, discussing, and digesting a small selection from Robert Jordan's fantasy opus. This quest is led by Tyler, a true Wheel of Time warrior. I have all stories, ages that were and that will be. And I'll be joined by Greg, a complete novice to the Wheel of Time. The Wheel of Time and the Wheel of a Man's Life turn alike without pity or mercy. Join us each week as we read the Wheel of Time in our own sweet time, traveling deeper and deeper through the glass columns. But what does that even mean? No, 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 no. no. You don't get to find out yet. (laughs) Hello, and welcome back to Through the Glass Columns, your weekly Wheel of Time read-along podcast. I am one of your hosts, Greg, and joining me, as always, is the more knowledgeable, more uh, wizened, more world-weary, and more handsome host, Tyler. Tyler, how's it going? I am doing very well. Uh, to quote Janet, I am one of those four things. Uh, how, <laughs> how are things going with you, Greg? Great. Uh, you know, we've talked a couple times in the last few episodes about how it's hot nerd autumn with so much good fantasy and Star Wars on television. And, um, you, you know, uh, as we're recording this, I wandered into a Barnes and Noble today and uh, found one of the Star Wars High Republic books out a day early. So I'm going to record this and then go nerd out with a, a different book for a while. <laughs> And I'm actually about to begin the High Republic, so no spoilers on the podcast. Um, All right. Unless you have anything else to come, I think we just dive right into our one and only chapter this week, chapter 33, The Dark Waves. Go for it. I'm here and I'm ready for your in-depth, totally long, take up at least a half hour summary. Go. All right. So we begin with uh, the boys, Rand and Matt, getting a ride from a farmer, Hyam Kinch. Um, More or less, this is just kind of a, you know, they are getting a ride. We are resetting how worried they are. They're dodging to get away from, you know, caravans and groups of people who are going by. Um, We get yet another solid Matt's Arub moment when they are asked by the farmer where they're from. And he immediately is just like, oh, we're from two rivers. Not ideal. Um, (laughs) And then we quickly realize that something is a little bit off. We hear that Matt's blindness is almost completely cured, which isn't an issue. But then we also learn that Rand has gotten over an illness that we have heard nothing about. And then suddenly we realize this is yet another framing device within a framing device. It's framing deviceception. So then we have a flashback. Um, so we are we flashback basically to the night of four kings where the lightning struck and the dark friends were seemingly either injured or killed. Um, and we see Rand uh, obviously very worried. And we also see Matt concerned that now that he can't see because of the lightning bolt that he's going to be left behind or abandoned in some way. Um, they flee for as long as they can. They lay down for a very soggy sleep and immediately have a um, another dream of Baelzaman. And a few things happen in this dream. Number one, uh, Baelzaman seems to confirm that Howell Goad, the main dark friend from the previous chapter, is in fact dead, but he is going to be rewarded for finding Rand and Matt. Um, 
And then second, uh, Bielzaman, I wrote down, he is scary. He just kind of like glowers for about a page and a half. Um, and then he specifically threatens Rand by mentioning the eye of the world and saying that it won't serve him. And that mention, I think, is probably something we should come back to. Um, we then also find that Matt is also dreaming of Bielzaman. Rand wakes up first um, and Matt is dreaming that Bielzaman took his eyes, which is just slightly horrifying. Um the next day, um, they get a ride from another farmer. Um, this is actually the farmer who gives them the scarves from our original framing device. Um, and then Rand and Matt basically just need somewhere warm to stay. And so Rand pays basically all of their money at an inn. They finally get a moderately good sleep. Matt can at least partially see again. And as they are having breakfast and preparing to leave that next morning, they are confronted by a young man named Pater, who at first just seems like he mistakenly sat down with them and wants to chat, but it soon becomes apparent he is a dark friend. He is trying to convince them to stay where they are so that all of the other dark friends can join up and take them wherever they're supposed to go. Um, and after kind of a creepy encounter, he kind of outs himself to someone else in town and then Matt and Rand are able to escape um, they go to another inn try to do their gleeman thing but then Matt or I'm sorry Rand suddenly gets more and more ill eventually they're not even allowed to stay in the inn but are given a place to sleep in uh, the stables and Rand gets so feverish and ill that he is delusional. He sees visions. Uh, he's visited by a number of different characters. Um, and finally, once he kind of comes out of it, once his fever has broken, a woman comes into the stables, seemingly looking after her horse, but very quickly she attacks Rand and Matt. Somehow they manage to disarm her. Matt is about to kill her, but Rand talks him out of it, convinces him just to, you know, tie her up and leave her. And and they flee once again as they meet up with Hyam Kinch, the farmer from the internal framing device, but not the way back framing device. Uh, <laughs> Time-wise, it's a slightly odd chapter, but a lot happens both in terms of character and plot. So before we start working through it, I think probably pretty linearly, I'm curious, Greg, what your impressions of this extra size chapter are and just kind of generally what you were thinking as you were going through it. Uh, I think I would say that this has been the most disorienting reading we've done. And a lot of that comes from the ending, where, as you noted, Rand gets feverish. And it's it's really cool that our narrator is delusional. And that means we are kind of in and out of his visions and have to make that judgment. He, he becomes very unreliable. Yeah. Uh, but before that, even, I think it's just, you know, um, the word I have in my notes is relentless. It's just like thing after thing after thing. Lots of names, lots of, of places, in names, village names. And it's like, we're going through and, and, you know, I found myself like quickly scribbling down a name being like, this will be important. And then it's like, oh no, that person's gone already. So we don't care really that much about Albert Mull or, you know, some yeah. of these other farmers we encounter. And, um, you know, you surprised me a, a few episodes ago now by saying like the, the farmer's daughter will come back. So, so part of me is like, well, any of these could come back. Like these could, these might be really important, but um, they just don't feel that way. And it just feels like, the point is we're supposed to feel as tired and worn out by all this as Matt and uh, Rand. And so if that's the goal, I think it absolutely worked. Yeah, and I think this chapter does a really good job of what I've seen a lot of like 90s and 2000 films accomplish. I'm thinking like, 
Uh, a really good example of this is like Zodiac by David Fincher, where a big character in that movie is just the like date on the bottom left of the screen, <laughs> just progressively getting larger and larger. And it's almost about like the monotony of dealing with a case like the Zodiac case where there's never really going to be a big breakthrough. And I feel hmm. the same way about this chapter where it's just every time you read and then they arrived at another town it, you're right. It never becomes like this big, important moment we're going to remember. But the fact that something kind of eerie or ominous or not ideal happens in every single town they go to, just that like drainingness that must have on someone, I feel like really comes through well in this chapter. Yeah. And, and just added to that, all the, the wordage spent on how rainy it is, how cold it is, how damp it is. And, and we joked last time about how neither of us are outdoor kids. And uh, like, I think that just, you understand how like soul crushing this grind must have been uh, for these characters. And when they, you know, get testy with each other or get extra suspicious, it's like, yeah, cause I'd be cranky too. <laughs> yeah. I actually remember when, uh, I was an outdoor kid very briefly in my <laughs> teen years. I joined the Boy Scouts and I was like, I'm going to give it a try. And we went on like a big canoe trip where we had the option of either we could do like a hundred miler and get like the like badge for that. Or we could go for like a 150 miler. And the like guide we were with was like, here's the deal. We can do 150 miles, but it's going to be grueling. Or we mm. can do a hundred miles and you can have a day off at some point. And we had... <laughs> just like a downpour for six hours, awful, horrible, soggy day. Mm -hmm. And my group who did the hundred miler were able to sit in our like tents and play <laughs> cards. And the other group who came with us decided to go for the 150 and Ugh. described it as like the worst day of their life. I'm just imagining <laughs> that like horrible pouring rain for five, six, seven days straight while being chased by evil people. It doesn't sound like a great time. No, no. And, and again i think it was the chapter before this with the hiding in haystack so you wouldn't get as wet and just you know like even even what you describe is perfectly legitimate except even those people on the 150 have the tent and have modern conveniences yeah. where we're talking about just out under cloaks so you know the parts of uh lord of the rings like that i always thought like yeah that's where i would bail like sorry frodo like it sounds important but i i don't want to be out in the mud yeah, that sounds correct. Um, this is why we are friends. Um, so as far as taking this chapter kind of blow by blow, the only thing that really stands out to me in the initial framing device of the chapter is uh, Matt being a rube, right? It's, it's Matt giving away the two rivers. It's Rand reacting to that and trying to cover for it as well as, as he can. And at some point, it's just the coin flip of once that's out there, either this guy's a good person or he's not, and there's nothing mm. they can do in either case. I just thought that was a was a effective moment. Did that stand out to you at all, or was there anything else in that initial framing device that jumped out? Uh, I think I think it's a connected moment, but not technically the exact same thing, which is just a mention of the Queen's Guard and how the Queen's realm and the people they encounter uh, say, like, you know, well the queen is dictating to keep us all safe and i believe that's when matt reveals they're from two rivers and they the people there are like well yeah that's part of the queen's realm like she's kept control of that and yeah. and our characters are like we've never even heard of these people like you know so it was a, a cool little bit of uh perspective play that that uh stood out to me and certainly then you know confirmation that 
I, you know, I guess that reveals everybody's a little naive. Everybody's a little myopic to, to where they are and what their situation is. So they don't believe that these people would never have heard of the queen and, you know, Matt's just fine saying, I'm from two rivers. It's fine. So. Yeah. That reminds me, I think we've mentioned this maybe once or twice before on the podcast, but it reminds me of like the peasants in game of Thrones who are just like, I don't know who my Lord is. I'm just like trying not to die out here. (laughs) It's it's that same sort of thing. The two rivers are just like, I don't know who's queen. Let's get some sheep going. (laughs) That or, or an NPC in a video game where you're like, Oh my God, I'm running from a dragon in Skyrim. This guy's like, Hey, can you help me? find some moth wings for my potion you're like dude like not not now like that sounds fun but like there's a dragon right behind me so uh yeah something like that and and i think that keeps me from engaging too much with any of them because it does seem like they're just passing through they're they're the peasants in this story or or to, to go slightly more literary um in like the iliad you have all the lords squaring off and then they you know so and so son of so and so faces off against so and so son of so and so then there's just a line where it's like 500 men died behind them because <laughs> it's like we don't name those people we we don't talk about them stabbing each other with their swords we just care about the lords and so it feels a little like that too <laughs> yeah that sounds about right um and i think that's pretty much everything that i have prior to us flashing back to just outside of um of four kings and very quickly uh, we kind of get two kind of competing scenes that i think play very nicely together first um rand and matt discuss discussing kind of what their plan is going forward and Matt being desperately afraid of being left behind and then the dream that Rand has immediately afterwards so I'm just kind of going to kind of keep leaving you with the first word as the person who's <laughs> not as experienced did what jumped out at you about those scenes in that early like flight from four kings uh, a couple quick notes would be one that uh, Rand is suddenly more worried about what lies ahead, right? Matt is like, what did we leave behind? Who's chasing us? And Rand's like, he's taken the clues and he's like, it, this road isn't leading good places either, right? Like it's right. just the the noose has tightened enough that that wherever they go, they are. Uh, I thought the dream was really compelling. And, and I think you will probably want to unpack some of those specific images for uh, me a little bit more and, and for the, the listeners. But the thing I really thought was great was when uh, Rand stood up to Baalzaman and uh, said, I belong to myself. And so there was a lot there about that. Who does he belong to? And that fits in with the Dark Fiend saying that they would be the Dark Lords that would, you know, yeah. be owned by the Dark the dark one um and so he i that to me felt like he was standing up against prophecy and off predestined uh, against predestination and like i'm gonna i own myself and i'll make my own choices for where i'm headed um even though i think you know he kind of belongs to the the uh to Tarvalon and the uh the Aes Sedai in in certain ways so uh yeah so that was the main thing I I liked in that portion and like you said they mentioned the eye of the world and there is just this sense that um I think Baalzaman is getting really cocky and I don't know that that's unearned based on what we're seeing yeah I think that this is a really interesting dream sequence in terms of what information it gives us about what Baalzaman knows and what he doesn't know right because this Hmm. is both as you're saying a you know a moment where Baelzaman knows more than he ever has it's a moment where he's almost gloating about like I've got you right this dude died but it's over (laughs) I know where you're at 
But at the same time, that also reveals just how little information Baalzaman really has, right? Like they were in Whitebridge with a fade two weeks ago. And that's not, they, he wasn't able to get any more specific until Howell Goad stumbled upon that. And so I think that dichotomy of him both being at his like most powerful and as you say, almost cocky and deserving it. But also, as you know, Rand concludes later on in the chapter when they're debating whether it's worth it to go to any place or whether mm. the dark could be anywhere, he's like, look, if they're going to catch us, they're going to catch us. We've got to take some risks. They don't know exactly where we are or else they'd be upon us. So this, at least, I think, is, is kind of a double-edged sword from the perspective of Rand. It, it's one of his earliest hints that Baalzaman doesn't know everything about them. He required that person to discover something for him. Well, and, and I might have this wrong, but part of the turn in Rand's attitude also seems to be the fact that he's like, he at first kind of asserts like, well, you know, your dark fiends can't kill me because you clearly need me. And uh, Beelzebub was like, oh, I, I I control the living and the dead. <laughs> like, yeah. it's, it's better for you if you're alive, but like, don't worry about me, but like, I'll be fine either way. And, and, you know, I think that's kind of a classic trope of like, you take the threat of death away and it's like, yeah. what's the risk then? Right. Um, and, you know, it's also a trope to be like, well, there's a lot to risk still. There's, there are fates worse than death, but it did feel like Rand is just like, what do we have to lose now? We might as well take the risk. We might as well push forward because, you know, it seems if, if he's telling the truth at all, then we're really completely uh lost in this so might as well just go on and hope that that he's not telling the truth in some ways yeah and i think this is a really interesting section because at this point we haven't really gotten much time in ram's head after four kings right we had the framing device but that's significantly later we eventually realize and other than that we haven't really gotten a lot of rand reflecting on what's going on and i kind of like that we first see that Rand has reached a breaking point and kind of gone past it in his actions in the dream rather than him like stating or saying it, right? This is a this is a slightly different Rand in this chapter than it was even just one chapter ago. And I like that we, we see that before we hear it from him. I think that's really effective. Yeah, so so I want you to talk to me about the eye of the world. So I, I flipped open to it. And so uh, if you're in my uh, kind of uh, mass market paperback, I'm on 528. Uh, it says, uh, when he turned back, Baalzaman's outstretched hand had become a fist. You are mine, youngling, alive or dead. The eye of the world will never serve you. I mark you as mine. His fist opened and a ball of flame shot out. It struck Ran in the face, exploding searing. Rand lurched awake in the dark, water dripping through the cloaks onto his face, his hands trembling as he touched his cheeks. So it goes on a little bit there, but it seems pretty clear that this is also what happened in Matt's dream, right? And that's why Matt's saying he took my eyes, he took my eyes. Yeah. Um, you know, the marking stood out to me because the silver pieces from forever ago where Maureen marks them or, or kept tabs on them. You know, this feels like not just a kind of dream thing, but a, a real symbolic thing that he has now marked them. So uh, what should I be thinking about with that? 
Yeah, I think that is definitely part of it, right? I think it's really important, this idea of marking someone or someone having, especially we know the like dark ones mark the dragon's fang is a thing that is, you know, commonly used to associate with evil. And so I think that is something really important. The other thing is that this is just like our mention number three or four in this book of the eye of the world, right? We've had the tinkers were telling the story of the Aiel who were talking about the eye of the world. It's been mentioned, I think, by Moraine once before. We've got Baalzaman has mentioned it once or twice in dreams. And so we should, I think, and it's also the name of the book, right? So <laughs> I was going to just joke with you. Yeah, yeah, of course. So, uh, uh, yeah, when, when they get to the title, you know it's something that matters and something that's important. I, I will say in that regard, we're getting late in the book to not really understand it, right? Like, as yeah. we're getting well past halfway, you know, you would have thought it, it would have come into play more significantly by now. Yeah, and I think this is our first real hint at any details about the eye of the world. It's been mentioned mm -hmm. as a threat or a thing that, you know, needs to be gone to or that someone is trying to destroy. But this is our first hint that the eye of the world is something that can be used. It is something that has a purpose and that it can be directed towards something. And in some way that it seems to be limited in terms of who can use it or who it will serve, right? Mm. And so these are small details. I don't want to give away too much, but sure. it's it's new information we haven't had about a phrase that is literally the first phrase we encounter when we read this book. Uh, so just drop in the jingle here for Greg's Wild Speculating to Amuse Tyler. Uh, Greg's Wild Speculating to Amuse Tyler. Got it. Uh, you can plug that in wherever you want. We can make a ringtone, listeners. Uh, <laughs> I am clipping that. <laughs> uh, so that to me, I mean, the name of it, plus the fact that somebody can use it, I'm thinking a site of prophecy, right? A kind of... Uh, uh what am i uh what's at delphi i'm forgetting what what is at delphi in mythology uh it but a place where you see forward and it, the oracle an oracle, oracle yeah. at delphi god that, I, it's been a long day of teaching so forgive me long day of teaching and half an ipa uh so uh, the oracle at delphi or something like that so a place where you could prophecy or form you could really see forward and uh get the truth of what's to come, especially in this world where history repeats itself and overlaps. As it's presented here, it doesn't seem to me to be related to the power of the Aes Sedai and um, potentially Egwene, the one, the one power, the one? Yes. Yeah. So it seems like a separate thing. And I would imagine the way they're speaking about it, it would be a superseding thing. So if you have control of the eye, you have the knowledge or you have the power to uh, rule over all or, you know, um, affect all at once. Uh, that's my wild speculating based on those little hints without going far. I'm sure you can't say much about it. Yeah, I can't really say much. The only other thing that jumps to mind here is the fact that this is the first time that we've seen, I think, Beelzeman discuss his objectives, right? He's talked mm -hmm. about how he wants to bring in Rand and Matt. He's talked about, uh, you know, Perrin as someone who he wants to serve him in some way. But um, this is the first time that we really have known what Baelzaman wants. And apparently one of the things he wants is the eye of the world to serve him. So for mm -hmm. no reason other than he's interested in it, I think that kind of raises the stakes around whatever this object is whenever we figure out what in the world the thing is. 
Yeah. And, you know, Eye of the World also just makes me think of like, like, um, now the words escape me for this. Uh, the the little models where planets uh, circulate and so on. Um, a solar system model. Like an astrolabe. Yeah, I think. there it is. Yeah, 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 yeah. So like something like that potentially as well, because, you know, eye of the world and kind of spinning and modeling and ticking. And it's like, oh, maybe this is, uh, you know, a part of that. So I don't know. I've, I've, I'm, I'm curious. And, you know, I think I would, if the book wasn't named the eye of the world, I probably wouldn't have let these, these wouldn't have resonated with me. I would just kind right. of kept going because they don't sound any more significant than a lot of the other references we get throughout there. Um, but it does matter, like you're saying, when it's from Baalzaman's mouth and it's his yeah. plans. So, yeah. And I think unless you had anything else to say about the dream, this seems like a pretty good time to transition into uh, Rand and Matt's repeatedly changing challenges with getting <laughs> food and a roof over themselves, right? We have them um you know briefly try to do the gleeman thing it doesn't work out because of rand's illness we see them um try to just buy a room it seems to work relatively effectively but it is expensive prices are up everywhere so we've got this kind of chunk of the book where rand and matt are you know dealing with a number of kind of small hurdles to me the most interesting one in the scene that i wanted to make sure we talked about was pater the dark friend who kind of sees them and sits down next to them and tries to intimidate them and has no follow through. Um, mm. What was your thought about Pater if he, you know, tingled your spider sense or someone else or something else during this section, if you just completely ignored that weird young man who's a dark friend? <laughs> uh, at the risk of alienating one of our three listeners that we know is a weekly listener, uh, I've recently badmouthed director Krennic from Rogue One uh, in a podcast on Andor, which I'm recapping on a different show. And uh, I would say he gave me similar vibes here. Gosh, I'm just, I'm picturing the angry tweets I'm getting. I'm so <laughs> sorry, Ben, uh, to be badmouthing Krennic again. Uh, but Krennic to me is somebody who is stuck in the middle and he's never going to be great because he's just not smooth enough, not good enough at the game. And I just feel like Pater is this dark fiend version of it. He's like a wannabe. He wants to be in the upper echelons. He wants to be in the inner circle, but he just isn't able to like understand it really. And it just doesn't have the skills. So he's, he's stuck at this level and he goes back down, uh, you know, kind of flailing in some ways. Cause, cause he doesn't have a follow through, like you said. Yeah. And I really think of Pater as in some ways being a slightly scarier villain than some of the villains we've seen before, because let's be honest, I don't really know that many people who I think could follow through with doing like serious violence, right? Most mm. of my friends, if they snapped, they would like, throw something out a window right yeah. yeah but i know a lot of people who if they snapped would tell the wrong person the wrong thing or mm. people who if they were confronted with an opportunity to make a lot of money to help someone they know was evil would go along with it and that's kind of the read i have on pater right is he's just like an, a seemingly normal person who in some way has gotten affiliated with the dark, whatever that means or meant. And he's not the kind of person who's going to show up and stab you with a poisonous dagger, but he'll rat you out to the people who will. And those people are kind of just as scary and a little bit more realistic when I look around myself and think about the people I encounter on a daily basis. 
Yeah. I mean, the word I would put to all of what you just said is desperation, right? When somebody is desperate, then they are unpredictable. And like you're saying, they will do extreme things because they have nothing to lose or they're not thinking about the consequences of their actions. So, so I agree with that. Um, If we're comparing him to Goad, he seems less in control. If we're comparing him to the woman we meet next, I mean, I, I think Peter and this woman both register me as like, they're the the minor boss, the mini boss that you encounter on the way to the level boss. Like they're, they're not even ranking at level boss level threats. Um, but it does give me pause to say, okay, we're accumulating all these villains that they've wronged or that they've, you know, so so not only is there an army behind them of dark fiends, of, of Trollocs, of, of uh, uh, shadow fiends, it's like, oh, but now you've pissed off like half of them and they, they, they do seem to have influence over others and could keep pulling people into the hunt and into the chase. So I think any sense of danger I really have from Pater is that like, oh, you can't just keep, uh, you know, I, I guess maybe I'm thinking Grand Theft Auto or some of those games where you can like just like cause a huge amount of havoc and you just keep running and then eventually like it's you stand gone. still. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, true. They they fade away or or some of them like I used to do this in Call of Duty. I would run through the whole level and then I'd pause and they'd all just come running up behind me. Like the programming <laughs> wasn't sophisticated enough that they disappear or, or so all of a sudden I I just have to like deal with all of them eventually. And it's feeling I think because Rand and Matt are so out of control, it's feeling like that. Like you are making sloppy choices that are going to have long term consequences even if you're only doing them to get out of the moment by moment danger yeah and i think what what pater really highlights for me in relation to that is that as you mentioned before matt especially is very backward looking right he is very worried about what is behind us and i think this might be the moment where rand realizes that there are just so many people ahead of them. Statistically, some of them are going to be dark friends and some of them are going to encounter them, right? And so that is what's so worrying about Pater to me is that he is not Goad who tracked them down and followed them after a dramatic event. He's just someone who happens to be in the right place at the right time. And there are going to be a lot of potential opportunities for that to happen in the future. And not all of them will give themselves away in the way that Pater did. Yeah. I mean, it it reminds me again to go to Star Wars of like when in Mandalorian, all the bounty hunter pucks light up. And I think that's a moment in John Wick too, right? Where it's suddenly like, oh, like, like you're saying, the danger is all the people who are just going to be around and you're going to have to overcome them that, that they're, they're ready to, to leap into action. So, yeah. Um, I guess I, I mean, do you have anything you want to say about the woman at the end? Not in particular. I wanted to make sure we spent at least a little bit of time talking about Rand's hallucinations, just yeah. because it's, it's such a unique scene in what I at least sometimes just lump together. There's like a big chunk of Rand and Matt run away. And so mm. this feels just like the middle of that chunk to me. So something unique I, I zero in on. Yeah. And, and I, one of the things I was going to say is I'm kind of just didn't want to lose sight of the fact that I'm shocked how long we're spending with these two. And, and because it's been so many chapters now and episodes of the show, frankly, that it's like, it seems like so much time is passing here and we haven't checked in with those other groups and I'm, I'm confused how what's happening to them. And, you know, I think Rand and Matt were always kind of in the lead towards Camelin, but, but is that going to last, especially with all these stops and all these things? Uh, 
Yeah, I mean, it, what was most prominent to me about those hallucinations is he's he returns to being fixated on his parentage, and you know, it was it was a uh, fever dream of his father that led him to these questions about who he is and so it's interesting that like yeah in the weakened state that's what creeps out of your subconscious is like old oedipal problems or or you know threats of the father or threats of your lineage and you know i think as i recall there were moments where he he wants to assert like no i am who i am and also moments where he's a little afraid still that matt will figure this out and, and question it so um I think the only other thought I have on it is that like, it just felt like it was time to remind us that that's still happening, that that's still a plot in this book. So. Yeah. And I think this, and actually in this sequence, I think as he's getting kind of more and more worked up about it, this is actually the first time he mentions something about it out loud to Matt, right? Mm -hmm. Is he, he briefly says, you know, something along the lines of like, no, he's my father. He definitely is. Um, What I thought was really interesting about this section is that we get at least one glimpse of basically every character in the hallucination, right? I think we Mm. go like Egwene, Moraine, Tom, Lan, and then Perrin, and then it starts like kind of like going very quickly through minor characters that they've encountered. Um, But I just thought it was interesting that Rand... You know, I think if we had gotten one moment that was just Rand and Egwene in the hallucination, that would kind of fit something I've you know seen in a lot of literature before. But to go through every one of those characters and give just like a quick glimpse into how Rand is feeling or thinking about each of them, I thought was pretty effective given what you just mentioned, which is the fact that we haven't seen any of mm. them in this book for 40, 50, 60 pages. Yeah, it it really felt cinematic to me. Like this is a montage of, you know, I I assume the director would use footage of wherever they are in their journeys now, even though Matt couldn't, or sorry, Rand couldn't picture them actually in that. But it does feel like that kind of, like you almost expect it to end right now. It's like, oh, what's going to happen to all of us? Are we all lost and and thinking through? And then, you know, you flash away. Again, I th- actually, I think the Lord of the Rings movies kind of did that at the end of Two Towers, especially, yeah. right? They they kind of cross-cut between the plot lines to remind you who all was was in, in danger and see where they're each at. Um, so I, that is really cool. And I think... I think it was also necessary to remind us that those connections still matter because when we get yeah. so involved with that kind of let's just survive type attitude, you know, they, they aren't spending a lot of time thinking about every single one of those other characters. And, you know, there's still some meaning to this fellowship, to this grouping that, um, you know, Robert Jordan wanted to make sure we weren't going to lose. Um, yeah. I think that was uh, really well done. Yeah, and, and given that that hallucination kind of dominates the the latter half of this chapter, I think one thing that's really easy to lose is just the scene uh, that immediately precedes it, where Rand and Matt have a plan, they're going to do their gleaming thing, they're going to juggle and they're going to play flute, and Rand out of nowhere is just out with what seems to be a very severe illness that seemingly is completely gone 12 24 hours later when they get off of master kinch's um you know wagon in the beginning of the flashback sequence so um, it's just a bug just a bug just yeah, so, a 24 hour thing yeah I, I was curious was your reaction it's just a 24 hour thing or were you reading more into that when you get this kind of like out of nowhere seemingly random event that then almost miraculously clears up 
Uh, I mean, I, I, I'm going to be honest with you because now that you're asking questions, I'm like, oh yes, it really stood out to me as well. But, uh, it was, it was definitely like, I just assumed it was the weather and the dank of the lifestyle getting to him. And when it clears up, it, it's not, you know, it's, it is that they had the night in the dry stable perhaps, or, or, you know, I'm, I'm somebody, when I get a fever, the fever just breaks and I feel pretty great. Like I wake up from my nap, just super sweaty. I'm like, Oh, okay. I'm, I'm back on the mend or whatever. And so, uh, I think that's really the level I was at when I did the reading of it. Um, you know, certainly now as well, and that the blindness is, is recovering. Um, you know, and and the other thought I have is just, it's so funny that what I was worried about the last chapter was so much was the dagger. And it's like, the dagger doesn't play into any of this chapter really. And so it is, it's, it's like, we have these different plots going forward that, that, take turns uh with what what's in control or what what needs the most attention so so, um yeah that's that's where i sat on it but certainly i can see you know with the the presence of the dreams and that we know the dreams can affect real life there's certainly the chance there's some magic going on here um and we've had just so many encounters but but i i read it mostly as fatigue okay that seems totally reasonable (laughs) and i will not dissuade you of that position until the book decides to do so or doesn't um (laughs) i think then the the last thing to talk about is the encounter in the stables after uh rand's fever has broken uh between them and this woman presumably a dark friend who you know rand actually i kind of like this sequence in that rand just gets confused about what's going on and then the action is all over um Mm. but I think it's a pretty effective sequence, especially when we get into Rand's reluctance to kill someone, even someone who was just trying to kill them. So what was your read on this confrontation, both between them and the dark friend and also Rand and Matt? Um, you know, uh, again, when we think of definitions of heroism, it's like preserving life, even at, to the point it doesn't make sense. So I definitely sided with Rand and it's like, disarm eliminate the threat capture them but but you feel like well you shouldn't stab or kill her and and yet you know if we're actually thinking about real survival in some sort of situation like this is like yeah like tie up the loose ends don't leave somebody to come trailing back and and get their revenge on you um but i definitely the moment still felt with rand and i think just in general i tend to side with rand over matt uh because i'm i think rand's entirely in control of his actions and not under any kind of control uh from from a uh weapon or or just from general stress so uh so that's where i sided and you know it's it is like very familiar, right? Like I, I'm not thinking of a good comparison at the moment, but there's all these times where somebody's like, oh, we got to kill them. We got to do our thing. Or you know what I'm maybe thinking of is Saving Private Ryan, right? Where they're like, we got to kill him. We got to kill him. And, and they're finally like, no, just, you know, blindfold him and send him off walking back towards the German lines. And then that is, of course, the soldier that comes and kills uh, at least one or two of them in the final confrontation. So uh, yeah, I'm sure that choice will have consequence, but I... I still I'm lawful good. So I was like, that's the right choice to make, even if it's the wrong practical choice to make. Yeah. And I think what's really interesting is after they tie the woman up and, you know, they're like kind of getting ready to run away. I I think she even like criticizes them for their decision making. She's like, yeah, that's a mistake. I'll take it. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. And and I'm I'm sure it will prove to be. I mean, yeah, they if it's that heavily signaled, I'm sure she'll be back to cause a problem. 
Robert Jordan does not let characters go, I'm afraid. Uh, you are correct to be taking notes on random people that are encountered on the road. Um, I also just liked the, the moment of it completely being unexplained and not discussed at all. But as they're running away, um, Rand drops the dagger this woman was using into like a rain barrel and it starts steaming and foaming everywhere. Like yeah. it's clearly a poisoned dagger or enchanted or something. And I think that's just like a an interesting detail that this probably is one of the more dangerous people they have encountered so far, right? Random monsters yeah. by don't have weapons like that. Also, just a reminder that we're in a fantasy world because because yeah. this is a pretty earthbound chapter. And so it could be clear. I mean, even these confrontations they're having are with people. It's cheap to film and all that, but you need some kind of special effects gimmick to to draw in the audience more and, and remind them the world they're in. So, yeah. yeah. And I think that explains why many of these chapters are not in any way adapted on the television show. Um, I mean, it'd be a season's worth on some shows that it's just <laughs> lost on their own. I think Game of Thrones was doing that for a while. And then then we got to the late season. Where we were like, no, they, they just fly there or whatever. And, and we skip those types of chapters. So. Yeah, time doesn't need to make sense in the North. Don't no, worry about no, those Don't worry about it. <laughs> uh, I think that's all that I had for this chapter. Was there anything else in your notes, Greg, that jumped out at you? Uh, my notes have been covered. I, I think I'm feeling satisfied. That was actually a longer discussion than I anticipated because, you know, it kind of felt like a plot chapter. There's not as much as we've said before. But uh, but yeah, you enlightened me to a few things and it got me rethinking some of those. And, and that's what I look for. So uh, onward we go. Our next episode will be chapter 34, The Last Village and chapter 35, Camelin. And maybe just a moment ago, I cheated and wanted to see and looked and saw that these are still two more Rand and Matt chapters, which which I kind of expected with those titles. But uh, uh, onward, onward, onward we go, uh, stuck with these two. So I'm satisfied, but I'd love to have you close it out with any thoughts and, and say goodbye to the folks. Well, first off, goodbye to the folks. I will miss <laughs> you. I will see you next week. Um, but second, I think that when I think about this book in retrospect, having read it far too many times. <laughs> um, I often kind of think of this section with Rand and Matt as kind of the, the middle final hurdle before you get on. I think we've talked about this before. People who have talked to you about the book say, once you're hooked, it kind of grabs you and there's a momentum to it. I mm. think of this as like if you've ever been on a roller coaster where you get really high and then you kind of go down real fast and do like a couple twirls. And then there's a second hill in the middle of the roller coaster mm. that you've got to like click up again. I sure. often think of this section of Rand and Matt going through village after village after village as those clicks up the second hill. Right. All so, right. Um, it is is time to start going downhill. Not quite yet. Robert. Jordan writes really long books, but mm. we are getting there. It is coming soon. So I appreciate you all sticking with us. I can guarantee there is much more kind of fun. We put your hands in the air coming soon. And we look forward to getting into some of the details of how we get there and where exactly it is we're going next week through the glass columns. So ends another episode of Through the Glass Columns. We thank you for joining us and continuing with us on our quest to cover all of the Wheel of Time in our own sweet time. This podcast features original content developed by Tyler Orm and Greg Cass and is not in any way affiliated with, associated with, or condoned by the Robert Jordan Estate, Tor Fantasy, or Amazon. All content is intended for entertainment and educational purposes only. 
If you're enjoying this podcast, please seek out the books from your local bookshop or library and join us as we continue our journey. If you'd like to contact us to share your thoughts or give feedback, you can email us at throughtheglasscolumns at gmail.com or find us on Instagram and Twitter by searching Through the Glass Columns. Thank you once again for being part of this community. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe to the show, leave us a review wherever you're listening, and recommend this show on your social media to help us grow our community. We look forward to welcoming you back next time Through the Glass Columns.